0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. Today's interview guest is Mark McKenzie of the U.S. Men's National Team and Ghent. We've had some great guests lately, including Michael Keane, Michael Parkhurst, and Hope Solo, so check those out. But let's start with The U.S. men's national team won Mexico nil in the Gold Cup final. The game just ended. I'm joined by Chris Whittingham, who you can hear on Univision, Inter-Miami Radio, the Dan Levitard Show, and the Chelsea Mic'd Up podcast. Chris, thanks for joining me. How are you? I'm doing well. That that (laughs) final is great. I had a nice time. I really enjoyed that. (laughs) Miles Robinson with the late, late header in extra time off a wonderful delivery from Kellen Acosta, the the two best players of the entire game for the U.S., I think, connecting on the game winner, the trophy winner. In Mexico, I, I'm watching the trophy ceremony right now on TV, and, and they look stunned a little bit. Like they feel like they, sh- they shouldn't have lost this game. I think a lot of Mexico fans will agree with that and be very disappointed. But um, huge, huge, I think, for this group of US players. It's not the USA squad, but Greg Burhalter, who also, I think, this is a big moment for him, a big summer for him. Uh, It was his decision to bring this group to the gold cup and to let the A squad guys have some time off and have preseason with their clubs and be ready for world cup qualifying, which starts in just a month. But you have to feel like some of these guys are going to now be around for those world cup qualifiers, maybe even one or two starters. And this experience and winning a trophy and beating Mexico in the final, that's all really good stuff. And I come away from this thinking that the U.S. men's national team mentality, which has been a little shaky over the last five to six years, is back. Well, to, to get probably a little bit too big for a gold
1: cup, um, I, I do think that... In theory, what's happening during these international tournaments is we're measuring who the best countries at soccer are now. These are very flimsy measurements, right? You wouldn't do a measurement on a single elimination tournament, but it's the best that we got. And so I do think that what this means if we're looking at it on a bigger picture scale, yes, you know, on a medium scale picture, you're looking at World Cup qualifiers and you're saying maybe Miles Robinson can start, maybe – Kellen Acosta can start in a pinch if Tyler Adams is unavailable. Matt Turner has real competition in goal, and you're looking at individuals. But on a bigger level, it's how is the American soccer system preparing players for these kinds of moments? And the idea that players can come, you know, James Sands is a year and a half, two years worth of professional experience. And at times, you know, had to write out some difficult moments, but at times was a rock at the back for the right. U.S. men's national team. The fact that Greg Berhalter trusts the youngest player and his squad and George Bello to start at left back in a final against Mexico in what was a cauldron of an environment, I think is a credit to the system preparing players to be top prof- top professionals, right? And maybe not all of them will make moves to Europe and will draw headlines and will figure in the U.S. men's national team in the future, but they went into a difficult environment in a very intense game and looked up for it. And that's what I would say is Greg Berhalter's kind of greatest growth as U.S. men's national team manager. You compare this to the 2019 Gold Cup final or even the first 15 minutes of the Nations League final against Mexico, they didn't look up for it. But I think Greg Berhalter has figured out a way. He's a very smart man. And while he's kind of maybe wed to a few ideas that might not fit international football, he does eventually understand what the game is about. And I think that he's figured out Intensity is the most important thing when you're playing Mexico, particularly on a tiny pitch in Las Vegas where the game is entirely won in transition. We need to be able to compete. And the fact that the U.S. has 23 players that are ready to compete against Mexico in a high-level match, I think says massive things about the way that the sport is growing in this country.
0: You're fired up. I love it. Uh, <laughs> it it's, it's hard not to have energy like after a game like that. And let's be honest here. This was not the most technically skilled us team you'll ever see no and i I think maybe paul areola personified that in this game he's he's so good at getting himself in positions to score he just can't finish to save his life and i really thought that might have been the big chance the one he had the first one he had in the first half where he shot it wide off the post he was in uh got another chance not quite as good later in the half that he did not finish and then in the second half uh talavera ended up making a, a nice save but i i thought Ariola might actually stuff it into the goal from close range and uh Ariola is a guy who gives a hundred percent every game so you can never complain about the work rate about what he does on the field in terms of all the little things that coaches love but That's not Christian Polisic or Gio Reyna in terms of finishing ability. And I think this U.S. team, you can see there was a difference between the A-Squad guys and this group. But you can still get results, and and that's what they've done here. And I, I, I actually, I'll be honest, I mean, like this entire tournament, in the back of my mind, I was thinking to myself, this could be a little like the 2009 Gold Cup in which the final was 5-0 Mexico, you know, similar type situation where you had Mexico with a, a more of their full strength guys in the U.S. And not only did that not happen here, the U.S. comes away with the victory. Um, and there's ebbs and flows in this wonderful rivalry. And, I, you know, I, I think it's one of the great rivalries in international sports anywhere. And there's so much involved in this, as you know, that goes way beyond sports and into identity and and
1: geopolitics
0: all that stuff and that's what part of what makes it a great rivalry and 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 so it seems like this summer the u.s has finally gotten ahead just a little bit of mexico with the nation's league final and now the gold cup final after mexico had had the upper hand for for several years actually and and We'll see. There's going to be two more games, two World Cup qualifiers with A squads, one in November in Cincinnati, one in March in Mexico City at the Azteca, and you all should go to that, both those games, but go to the Azteca as well because it's a bucket list event. Um, I can't wait for those games. I'm ready for World Cup qualifying. It's in one month and one day is when it starts, my friend. What? (laughs) <laughs> it's, oh my God! <laughs> Holy hell! Uh, yeah, I've
1: actually uh, I've I've begun the process of uh, of getting to USA, Mexico, and Cincinnati. So, nice. uh, Hopefully, I'll be there. Maybe we can do a live pod from there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, in terms of. You know, the ebbs and the flows. I thought you were talking about the ebbs and the flows within the game, never mind the oh, rivalry. No, that too. Like, we can. Like, like within this game, and you're going to have to be able to suffer moments, right? Mexico does a really good job of playing with intensity, of stretching, of playing the ball quickly. If we're talking about individuals that had great performances for Mexico, I'd say you start with Edson Alvarez there in the, in mm. the midfield. He's good. I was watching on Univision, and they're calling him El Machín, El Machín. I was like, oh, my God. It, it makes it more imposing and more... Uh, uh, kind of ominous that he's all over the pitch as the machine but um he was great and they were just able to stretch the u.s and ultimately it, it's reliant upon those center backs to get the job done when the ball gets crossed in the area miles robinson i saw uh, doug roberson of the atlanta journal constitution was saying how many aerial duels has miles robinson won and it, it, I, I would imagine it's in the twenties. Like every time it went in, it felt like he was rising to get out of there. I noticed that when he plays in MLS, uh, Inter Miami played against Atlanta last year like a hundred times, and so I just in my in my dreams I think of Miles Robinson heading away crosses. But in this game, he was immense there. James Sands was great, and Matt Turner made a couple of big saves. So it wasn't really needed after right. I would say halftime to, to to make a big save, but ultimately when you have those three, when you have a goalkeeper and two center backs that you feel confident in that are going to deal with the danger, it allows so much tranquility throughout the rest of the side. Maybe you can play a bit more aggressively. And I did think eventually the U.S. grew into the game more, particularly in the second half. Uh, But defensively, they were incredibly solid in this tournament. And actually, it's one of the underrated bits. If you look at the recent run that the U.S. have been on under Greg Berhalter, admittedly against some pretty poor opposition for the most part. The U.S. don't give away very many goals. And they give away probably fewer chances. The game against Qatar is probably one of the few games where they've given away a ton of obvious goal-scoring chances. I don't know what the XG was for tonight, but I would imagine that the U.S. was pretty solid in limiting chances just because they're so good. They've been really good defensively under Greg Berhalter in the last 15, 20 matches.
0: Yeah, and I think Acosta's part of that, too, protecting the back line. Um, You know, like Eric Williamson got the start in this game, too, another young guy who couldn't even make the Olympic team somehow. Um and even though he'd only started one other game in this tournament, I thought he was solid. Um, and you know, and Turner made a couple like of really nice saves in the first half. In, in the first half, you know, Mexico Mexico controlled it. Um, you know, they had I think 67% possession. They had like 12 shots to three or four. Um, and yet, aside from the Turner saves, you still felt like the U.S. Felt pretty good coming out of that first half the way things had gone. And it was even more even in the second half. At it, it, it points in the second half, I thought it was really open, surprisingly open for the U.S. to to move through the midfield. And, and there was even one spot halfway through the second half when Miles Robinson did a Franz Beckenbauer and, like, went straight up the guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and created a, a really nice opportunity. So... um Just, you know, we haven't mentioned Matthew Hoppe, who I I have now decided, I like his energy. Um, I like what that brings. It's Remember when Roger Clemens and Mike Piazza had that weird interaction fight almost happened during the World Series, and there were stories about Roger Clemens, like, putting horse liniment on himself before games (laughs) to, like, (laughs) make himself, like, crazy? Like... I wonder about that with with Matthew Hoppy. Does he put horse liniment on himself or, or something because he's just like even like later in the game. He had boundless energy. It seemed like he also looked like he was
1: picking fights with Mexican players like he was intentionally trying to antagonize, which by the way, I mean, you have said throughout this tournament that this US team is a little too nice. Matthew Hoppy read those tweets. One hundred percent read those tweets. He was trying to get after it with some of the Mexican. Was like trying like what you got a problem? He was like kind of like Uh. sticking his chest out and raising his head and like trying and like you know normally like that's where Liga MX players or Mexican national team players thrive is trying to get in the heads of American players. And Matthew Hoppy was not having it. He was he was the aggressor very often in these uh, altercations.
0: There were some interesting non calls this referee. On both sides, did not make game changing calls. And in a couple of occasions, could have. I want to run a few by you here. First off, mm-hmm. the, the goal itself, was he offside?
1: Well, I, I I didn't even, I don't think so. I don't think so. But I, I did not, I, I jumped off my chair and started jumping up and down. So I, I can't know for <laughs> sure. I'd have to watch it again.
0: I mean, I, I assume VAR <laughs> checked it. They check everything, yeah. every goal. Uh, the replay I saw, like, if they were going to do Premier League-style uh, VAR... Which, by the way, can you imagine like, that
1: in the hands of CONCACAF?
0: Oh, God. <laughs> uh, but if you if they had done, like, Premier League-style, and, like, I, I think the top of his sh- of Robinson's shoulder actually might have been mm. offside, but they did it basically MLS VAR-style, which is... yeah, <laughs> <laughs> What's onside? <laughs> so, I, like... That would have been an interesting call. It didn't get made. And then uh, the Hector Herrera boot to the head of Eric Williamson that got a yellow and not a red, what was your thought?
1: Uh, thought? I thought that was a definite red card. Definite red card for me. I mean it's the ultimate in, in endangering the safety of an opponent. That's part of, the, that's part of the red card rules. Someone was saying, oh, he wasn't trying to do that. I, very, very often people have not read the laws of the game and they think you have to intentionally, like Hector Herrera has to go in and try to kick Eric Williams in the side of the head in order to get a red card. No, if you stick your boot up that high and you get nowhere near the ball and you catch the side of the head of an opposition player with your studs, with the studs of your boots, that's a red card. <laughs> And I agree. I find Concacaf officiating infuriating. Now, most people understand this about Concacaf, right? That, like, for the most part, they take a very lax view of the game, right? Contact is encouraged, and yet sometimes, that's on one end. On the other end, is they will call the most minuscule bit of contact. As a free yeah. kick. Like, there were a couple times where I thought either Eric Williamson or Matthew Hoppy cleanly won the ball, and all, we have to slow the whole thing down for a free kick. Like, because the slightest bit of contact while also winning the ball. So, like, heinous challenges go mostly unpunished, but the slightest bits of contact do. Like, it, it is the most infuriating thing to watch CONCACAF matches.
0: Was that like a, a British pronunciation of minuscule that you just gave us? Minuscule? Like, that's yeah, a very oh, fa- fancy lad maybe. pronunciation, <laughs> my, my guy. Minuscule. I like yeah. that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> that probably is. Uh, that's annoying.
0: Yeah, um, yeah I, I'm with you on, on CONCACAF referees. There were a couple other moments where there were appeals in this game from the Mexican players for handballs, at least a couple in the box. Any of those seem like they uh, – there was one that I thought might get called, and it didn't. Yeah, so there was one well, – was it Reggie Cannon who kind of put his hand on the
1: ground? to kind of, like, steady himself, and then it came off that. The other ones for me, like, Rogelio Fu- Funes Mori, like, from a fan standpoint, like, to be a fan for two seconds, I had enough of Rogelio Funes Mori asking for penalties. <laughs> At a certain point, I was like, shut up, man. Like, get on with it. Stop asking for penalties. I've had I had enough of Rogelio Funes Mori. But, yeah, I, I, there were a few where, like, maybe early 2020, 2021 Premier League season are, are handballs, <laughs> but... No, I think any any logical view, any any logical interpretation of that law, for me, uh, is not a penalty. By the way, uh, you're pretty spot on about this Miles Robinson thing. Uh, I, he might have been offside. I hadn't you seen You looking this. at it? Yeah, I'm looking at it now. I pulled up the replay, and I'm looking at it. And I, I, think, I think I have point of contact, and that right arm is slightly offside.
0: <laughs> well, can't get it now. Um, yeah, well, what are you going to do? It's something to think about, though. Like, if you eat- if you get calls, I, I know U.S. fans have been bitter over the years about this is probably the fifth time that Hector Herrera, U.S. fans, think should have gotten a red card in a game against the U.S. Yeah. And well, at least, at least
1: no one. one from Mexico choked a U.S. player tonight. So that was an upgrade.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's still conca-cafe. Uh, I, I don't feel like anyone got totally conca tonight. I kind of yeah. felt like Canada did the other night against Mexico. But um, the, the, the most conca element of the game
1: for me was the pitch. And John <laughs> Strong noted this early on in his commentary, where apparently the field is only 69 yards wide, which is on the very low end of what is regulation. Right. By the way, something that I think the America World Cup bid needs to get sorted because a lot of NFL stadiums are built to have a 53-yard pitch for American football, some space for sidelines. But then, you know, part of, you know, selling seat licenses and selling suite-level tickets is getting as close to the field as possible. So they've put seats pretty close to the to the field in almost every stadium. So like Atlanta is built with soccer in mind and and a mm-hmm. few others as well, but a lot of stadiums as well, the seats are on top of an American football field and the pitch isn't wide enough. And I don't know if that's fixable with, you know, renovations or, you know, temporary solutions, but if you're going to play in American football stadiums, which I imagine they will for the World Cup, I think we're going to be seeing a lot of narrow pitches and I think tonight was kind of the first time it got talked about. But I've noticed before, like watching games at Hard Rock Stadium in Miami, sometimes mm-hmm. they're very narrow. And I, I, don't, I don't know if I, if I love watching a game. And I think that's why Greg Berhalter kind of a, he made four changes. And you know the indications we got from Stu Holden before the game was he's looking to play the game in transition. I imagine they probably went for a training session at that stadium, saw how narrow the field was, is, okay, we got to kind of adjust for how different the game is on a smaller... It is a considerably different game. Like, we were talking about the U.S. not being able to build out with possession. I think the lack of physical space on the field is part of the reason why.
0: Yeah, I don't think for the World Cup in 26 that FIFA is going to approve any fields, any stadiums that are too narrow for them. Uh, I don't think 69... uh, is, is gonna be wide enough for them. So I, I don't know if Vegas is bidding or not, but um, you're not gonna be able to, to pull that off. It's actually funny, cause I, when I used to do sideline reporting for Fox Sports, I was doing sideline for an MLS game at Yankee Stadium, which has that ridiculous field situation. <laughs> and I went to Home Depot before the game and bought a big measuring tape. <laughs> And and before the game, Alexi Lalas and I actually went out on the field and measured it, and it was exactly 70. And I, I was surprised... Because it does, it still doesn't look like that when you see it on TV. And there's some part part of that is camera the camera angle. It's a low camera yeah. angle
1: compared to the, like the the camera angle in this stadium. But still, yeah, if, if you maybe I would have said like 63 for Yankee Stadium. My favorite right. joke, by the way, is Michael Davies of Venom Blazers calls that stadium the rhombus because it's not actually a rectangular <laughs> shaped pitch because the way that they draw the lines for the baseball diamond, it's not actually, so he calls it the rhombus, which is one of my favorite jokes.
0: It's obviously not a good place to play soccer. And I hope <laughs> NYCFC gets out of there as quickly as possible. But, um, but yeah, I mean like width of the field influences games and, um, You know there's certain mls teams over the years where the coaches have asked for narrower field when at home when they could actually have them be wider so um that's worth like an interesting kind of written piece at some point to get into the details of what teams are are looking for when they get into that because you can't the, the sport allows you to have some wiggle room in terms of how how wide the field is um Anything else on your mind about this right now? I mean, like it's you know the game has just ended. It seems like a few u s players have now shown that they're people you can call up to World Cup qualifying. A couple guys might might be in connect in contention for starting roles. I'm thinking Miles Robinson, given that Aaron Long is hurt. We don't know what kind of season Chris Richards is going to get off to. We expect John Brooks will start. Mark McKenzie in this episode is another guy who uh, has a a claim to stake there. Um, But you think Miles Robinson could start? I do. I I, I said it on the last episode after the semifinal
1: and – From a pure, like, I think at times the U.S.'s struggles in possession are because he's a right-footed player. I'd be curious playing as a a right-footed center back at right center back opposite John Brooks. Maybe he looks a bit more comfortable, but I think at times they were just limited in the passing options going towards that left-hand side because he's a right-footed player playing on the left. But from a pure defensive standpoint, did not put a single foot wrong, in my view, for six matches. Like. It has the instincts to cover has great covering ability. I think at times the U.S. has been a short short for pace at, at, at the back when trying to chase down and break up transition moments. Um, so when you have Miles Robinson there to cover, John Brooks helps immensely, particularly when fullbacks get forward. And if you don't have Tyler Adams available, then. You know having a player like that back there is great great in the air like all the traditional defensive abilities miles robinson has an abundance so for me like and I, I tweeted this it was great that he's the hero because he for me is the standout performer from the tournament in the end so the fact that the two standout performers as you mentioned which is probably kind of a narrative that we should double back to because we haven't talked enough about acosta's performance as a hold in midfield player against that team withstanding that attack we didn't think I remember the first time they played him as a holding mid, was it in the pre I think it was in the pre Nations League warm up? Was it against Switzerland or it might have been even earlier than that? Maybe in the March Friendlies against Northern Ireland. Like they tried him there and you're going I don't know, like, Kellen Acosta holding midfielder. Kellen Acosta, period, because he was called into some of the European-based friendlies as, like, one of the two MLS representatives. Like, really, Acosta being there. The growth from then to now, where all of a sudden Acosta, who kind of shows how the trajectory of players is going to be up and down sometimes. There's going to be ebbs and flows, and I think kind of U.S. fans have gotten accustomed to 19, 20-year-olds that skyrocket up, and if you stay in MLS into 24 25 then that's just who you're gonna be for the rest of your career but kellen acosta has made a considerable leap forward made a great club move from dallas to colorado was clearly valued immensely by colorado and has gotten the opportunity to play for a really good coach in robin frazier and has developed in his holding role and today put in an immense performance, pinged some incredible passes, was covering ground all over, and is playing that number six role incredibly well. And now one of the areas of concern, which is holding midfield behind Tyler Adams, is now you have a player there, and that's another positive sign heading forward towards World Cup qualifying.
0: Yeah, I, I, the the Kellen Acosta story is really interesting, and 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 shows that you can fight through form issues in that position even and and come back from it because he has and so i'm really happy for him uh just the way he played huge impact on this final tonight um and then there's going to be the question is matt turner a guy he's he's clearly in the top three now overall you know world cup qualifying starts in a month and a day do you you consider putting him as the number one guy
1: well zach stefan probably won't play in a game between now and then for Manchester, other than preseason, which he's played some in preseason. But Zach Steffen probably won't play in a game between now and then. So you're basically going to have to base it on his performance for the U.S. For me, Steffen's been okay for the U.S., but he's probably played in a lot of games where he hasn't been tested. Um, but had, he's had a couple of shaky moments in cup finals for for Man City. Um, had a shaky moment, I think, in the Nations League semifinal uh, in, in Denver. Um, and Matt Turner, if you look at his numbers in MLS, his numbers at this tournament, uh, this is from Paul Carr, saved the tournament high 3.5 goals compared to the shots that he faced. So he basically single-handedly stopped three and a half, four goals from going in. Uh, that Those are the numbers of a player who deserves a full call up into the national team and a real chance to compete. The question is kind of in like, how, how do you measure that if you're Greg Berhalter, right? Do you measure it on club form? Do you measure it on playing in club games? Um, because obviously, you know, one player's at Manchester City and the other's at New England Revolution, right? Like in theory, that's a no-brainer, but um, I, I don't, I think it's a really tough call, but it's a call to be made, right? I think that Matt Turner has did enough at this Gold Cup and has done enough in a couple of years now with New England since being tabbed by, by uh, Brad Friedel to be a New England starting goalkeeper. He's done enough to to merit consideration.
0: Yeah, it's a great story if you haven't listened to the interview we did with Matt Turner on our podcast recently, go ahead. It's it's he's good interview as well. And based on this Gold Cup, New England's got a couple of guys, I think Tajen Buchanan and Matt Turner who might be headed to Europe soon. When are the rumors going to
1: start to come for Matt Turner? It's about time. Someone's got to come in. He's a captain international of the United States. Someone has to come in for Matt Turner. Where's the Bundesliga <laughs> you, club that wants you him? You
0: would think, you know. I mean, yeah. um, he, he's not, he even admits it. He's not great with his feet. What he needs to be is not a liability with his feet, which he wasn't in he this wasn't, tournament. Yeah. Um, but the shot stopping is unfreaking real Yeah. It's by, it's far and away the best of any keeper in the U.S. national team pool, maybe of any U.S. keeper of all time. He's that much of a freak. Yeah. Um, no one gets and- to
1: full extension like he. I saw Jeff Lemieux who covers New England Revolution that like he he's just so used to seeing Matt Turner at full extension. Like you'll see goalkeepers that just like let him in or give a half hearted. Like he goes full extension for every single shot that ends up on target. And I, I forget who had the strike. Who had, who had the clearest chance in the first half from Mexico that Turner produced one of those full extension saves. I'll, I'll go. It might have been Funes Mori, but I'll go and find it for sure. But yeah, I mean. He is he is incre- he has incredible technique and gives himself a chance to save everything.
0: I got one other question for you because I watched this game on Telemun or on Univision because I, I think I've said this before. I, I like to see it in as close to real time as possible. I did the same. the same. Unless I did the it's same. on Big Fox, which it wasn't. I I don't have that possibility. So I had my antenna out for this one, um, and I, I've watched a lot of Spanish language broadcasts over the years, but I never had anyone answer this question for me. Why did they switch play-by-play guys in the second half? Uh,
1: Because they have two. I've (laughs) I've done this before. So I I work at Univision, and actually today I did uh, the kind of precursor to the Gold Cup final at MLS match uh, between Philly and Chicago, and I work with Ramsey Sandoval. We were due to split the halves. And Ramses, his his voice kind of gave out a little bit, so he just he just said, "Let's go and do the second half." Um, But I've I've split I've split halves all the time. It's just kind of tradition there. As a matter of fact, for the World Cup final in 2014, they had three play by play guys (laughs) that split. The final three different ways. So you think about that final, right? Extra time was split into ten-minute increments among three yeah. different guys: Luis Mortapia, Tapia, uh, Pablo Ramírez, and Pedro Bermúdez, who has the the iconic voice. But yeah, like the three guys called the World Cup final for them. So yeah, it's just kind of tradition there that they have. They had two play-by-play guys, they had two analysts, and two sideline reporters. It is an all-encompassing broadcast on Univision.
0: It's not because they get tired, is it?
1: <laughs> no, no, I listen. I, I know I know Pablo Ramirez very well. That man can commentate a football match for five hours if he had to. He is never short on energy. I can assure you of that.
0: <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Well, I, I really appreciate you having some time to... And a voice to do this. I know how many games you're doing all the time now and how many different radio shows and podcasts, et cetera. Chris Whittingham, thanks so much for joining me. This
1: has been fun, Grant. You'll do it again tomorrow morning for the Olympics. woo <laughs>
0: The summer of soccer continues on Paramount+. Plus. Stream over 2,000 soccer matches a year from around the world. That's all the heart-pounding drama from CBS Sports, including UEFA Champions League, Europa League, Italy's Serie A, Argentina's Primera División, the Brasi the NWSL, the Asian Football Confederation, and the CONCACAF qualifiers, featuring the stars from the U.S. and Mexican men's national teams. Plus, much more. It's the best of the beautiful game with all the beautiful names like Messi, Mbappe, Ronaldo, Rapino, and Pulisic. Be part of the excitement as champions are crowned and history is made. The world's game lives here on Paramount+. Plus. Visit ParamountPlus.com to start your free trial and stream every match live. Now, here is my interview with Mark McKenzie. Our guest now is one of the rising talents on the U.S. men's national team. Mark McKenzie is a center back for the Belgian club Genk and started the biggest game of the summer for the U.S., the victory against Mexico in the Nations League final. He's also the co-host of a terrific podcast called Orange Slices, which you should definitely check out. Mark, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: No, I no, appreciate you having me, man. Great to see you as well.
0: Yeah. Um, lots to talk about, obviously. It seems kind of crazy to me. You have already started the Belgian League season with Genk in July of all times. Did it seem like you had much of an off season? At all.
2: Yeah, man, it's it's, it's crazy because I remember when we would get to the tail end of our, our season here in Belgium, everyone was talking about, yeah, you know, we don't know when the season will end, but all we know is, yeah, we come back in July, so, so it's a quick turnaround. You know, we start back up, we have the Belgian Super Cup, it's like the third week of July, and then the season starts the 20-something, like 20, I think they were saying the 24th or 26th, so yeah, man, it was in the back of my head, you know, the entire time, I was like, okay, okay, we got to the end of May, and then... Yeah, we went to national team camp. You know, went to Switzerland, and then we got back. Went to Nations League, and yeah, got home. And I was, with my family, I was like, yo, they want me to report back July second. I've been home for like five days, and I'm already about to start my my season training again. And I was like, this this is, a, this is the quickest turnaround I've ever had. So it's uh yeah, it was it was crazy how fast it went. But, uh, but yeah, man, that's, that's what you do. You make the sacrifices. So.
0: I mean it's early obviously in the club season, but but how are things going so far?
2: Yeah, so far it's been it's been good. You know, preseason is yeah, difficult because we have guys coming from all over. You know, we have myself coming from Nations League, so you know, trying to give me a little bit of a period to, to to recover from the last year. Um, being that I came from the MLS season straight into the six months with the, the Belgian season. Um so yeah, it was uh it was tough and then we have uh, the South American guys coming from Copa America and, and, and World Cup qualification, you know, we have uh, a few guys go to the Euros, so getting everyone back on the same page, making sure everyone's healthy, up to speed and giving everyone a chance to relax a little bit, you know, before before starting the season again. So, you know, guys are getting one one and a half weeks off, you know, two weeks, trying to trying to squeeze in some time home after, you know, COVID kinda uh, kinda of prevented everyone from seeing family loved ones and, and just being able to, to kick back a little bit. So yeah, the training camp has been rapid speed, you know, trying – we got games after games, trying to get everyone fit, you know, also managing the legs, trying to keep everyone healthy, um, and then, yeah, ultimately prepare for the season because it's – yeah, it was right there. So, yeah, we, we just played the first match against Nandars, which was, yeah, a difficult one. You know, uh, I think that's probably the most heated rivalry outside of our, our rivalry with St. Droid. But, yeah, it was a solid, solid match, of course. It's the first match of the season, so don't read into it too much, but you know, uh, a match we can learn from, I think.
0: You moved to Gank from the Philadelphia Union at the start of this year. How would you describe the adjustment process, both kind of from a life perspective and, and a soccer perspective?
2: Yeah, I won't lie. In the beginning, it was tough because you go from an America where you have a country, you can go from East Coast to West Coast in six hours, and you're still – in essence, you know, on home, um, you go. You, you may have some cultural differences, you know, in terms of, uh, yeah, cuisines are out there. You know, the type of people you'll meet and, and whatnot, the, the lingo that's used. But you know, aside from that, everyone speaks English. You know, you'll find you know a Spanish speaker, of course, in, in the states. But yeah, you you feel at home. And then to to kind of make a jump from being at home to Another country, you know, in the, middle of a, in the middle of the season, but also in the middle of a pandemic. I think that was probably the hardest part for me, yeah. um, not knowing when would I be able to see my family next. Because COVID, uh, Belgium, honestly, Belgium is extremely strict with their rules. So, yeah, my family weren't able to travel at all. There were restrictions for them. Uh, we got clearance for my girlfriend to travel not until April. Yeah, like the second week of April. Um, so aside from that, with me handling everything, um, there's not much there wasn't much open um, I think that that was also a, a difficult thing I was coming and ultimately yeah you have life on the pitch you have life in the training facility you have the matches and everything but you spend a large amount of time off the pitch as well um, so so trying to become adjusted to this the, the way of life out here um, but nothing's open you know restaurants are closed you know stores are closed you got to make appointments do this the only thing that's really open is is the supermarket um so you're kind of going to see sites and whatnot but there's there's nothing else to it so um yeah it was it was, it was tough in the beginning just because i was by myself and, and trying to get everything settled settled but you know my family you know thank god for facetime you know i was able to facetime them nonstop. you know trying to help me you know with furniture and what color goes right with this and which apartment should i take you know do i get a town do i get a house you know okay what do i need to put in my cabinets you know i got plates i got glasses. And, yeah, so it was uh it was fun, you know, um, difficult but a fun period as well. Um, so yeah, again, Facetime, Facetime really helped. but yeah, on the pitch, man, it was that's that's the easy part, right? You know, of course, I say it's the easy part, but it's the, the easy part because <laughs> um, yeah, you, you, football is football. You control what you can control, and that's yourself, your attitudes, your 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 ability to adapt, and and ultimately to to grow. So uh, yeah, I think that was, yeah. You know, I think that gave me that escape, you know, from the fact that it was COVID.
0: Belgium's an interesting country. And, and one of the things I know about it is like, they don't speak the same language in even every part of Belgium. They speak French in certain parts. They speak Flemish in certain parts. Where exactly are you and, and what language do they speak there?
2: So I'm in Flanders. Um, so there's Wallonia and there's Flanders. Uh, Flanders is like the, the Dutch-speaking side, Wallonia um, is the, the French-speaking. Um, I, li- I live in the state of Lindbergh, uh, which is, yeah, one of the states in the country. Um, so, yeah, I'm in the dutch, Dutch-speaking dutch half, um, not far from the German border. And, like, yeah, 40 minutes from the German border and, and 30 minutes from the Dutch border. So, it's, yeah, a nice little pocket. And you go an hour south and you go to Liège, for example, and it's French-speaking, you know. So, yeah, the country is, is like it. When you're in school, you learn Dutch. You know, if you're in the or yeah, you learn French if you're in the northern half. Um, you speak Dutch at home, um, then you also learn English. But if you're in the southern half, you speak French at home, and then you learn Dutch and English in school. So yeah, they switch between you know both languages easily in the locker room. When I first got here, I was like, hey, <laughs> you know, I'm learning, I'm I'm practicing my Dutch, but you're already speaking French too. You know, you got to give me a second. I, I'm, I get it. I can speak a little Spanish. Yeah, I got a, a solid foundation with Spanish, so I was like, okay. But you guys are flipping you know back and forth like this is nothing. So yeah, it's been uh, I think that was <laughs> that was that was funny, but yeah, it gives me a chance to, to kind of practice, uh, going to the locker room, making jokes, you know, picking, picking things up. So it's uh yeah, it's fun.
0: <laughs> Does Genk play in any significantly different ways than Philadelphia did when you were there?
2: Yeah, so the manager, he is very possession oriented, you know, he likes to, to keep the ball, um, play pretty style football that you know ultimately he, Keeps the fans engaged, you know, whether it be with the ball, passing possession, possessing the ball, finding pockets, creating, you know, uh, numerical advantages, you know, in certain parts of the pitch. Um, whether it be creating chances in the in the attacking third with, uh, you know, little combination plays or, um, yeah, a single goal, you know, a single player taking on a couple guys and beating them and, and, and creating a, a goal scoring opportunity. Um, but also without the ball, you know, the intensity you know, to, to, to win it back right away. Um, yeah, rather than sitting in a block necessarily, you know, going after the ball as soon as we lose it. So um, I think offensively it's different than Philly. You know, in Philly we we have more of a, a direct you know style of play. If we couldn't possess the ball where it was. Yeah, we play it to the channel. We squeeze up. You know, play off of Sergio. Play off of Casper. Play off of Corey. Um, give them a chance to go up and fight for it. Or Put into the channel, let them run onto it, you know. And now we have you know an opportunity to, to press right away or, or to, to possess the ball in attacking third and, and create you know a chance right off the bat. Um, and defensively, I think it's it's similar, you know, trying to get after the ball, high high press, high intensity, lots of energy put into to winning the ball back as soon as possible, and 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 threatening parts of the pitch. So uh, I think yeah, offensively, it's probably the biggest difference. Um, but again, my first year with Philly, we, we had a team that liked to possess the ball, you know, with, with guys like Harris Buduian in at the six and uh, Keegan Rosenberry on the right, um, or Ray Gaddis, or um, let's see who we have. Uh, we had uh, who's, who's who's um, question? Yeah, we had Fabi. We had Matt Real on the left. We had I'm missing somebody. I'm missing. Somebody. I'm, I'm sorry, but <laughs> who am i missing? I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, we had Botic. You know, we had Anthony Fontana. We had guys who could play and co- combine in the middle of the park field, and then. You know, guys up top who were clinical. You know, we had wingers who like to take guys on one v one. Those senior, with Marcus Epps. You know, so I think my first year with the club in Philly was, was probably similar, uh, more similar to 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 how uh, how we play now in games, So in the national team as well, you know, playing oriented high intensity football. There. So yeah, I got a a nice nice palette for for, for playing styles. You know, my uh, my few years of playing so far, but. Yeah, I think it's important to, to, to have that in your pocket.
0: Yeah. You're just 22 still. You've risen very quickly. Uh, who have been some of the biggest influences on your development in the game? Oh, boy, yeah. So I
2: think directly, um, oh, man, uh, I'm going to forget people again. So <laughs> Sorry. My apologies, not apologies <laughs> in advance. Uh, I think, I think yeah, directly, I had lots of conversations with guys like Mo Dukes I think those two guys who I spoke to quite often, you know, when I was in Philly, because it was yeah, they were like the the big brothers, you know, for me in the club. They would bully me on the field, they would bully me in the weight room, you know, but they'd always put me under their, you know, under their arm and say, Hey, you can do better here or here's something to think about, you know, in this situation. So it's uh I think those two were, were, were big, big boosters in terms of my, my development coming up in the academy rank. Now and there's numerous coaches talk about but indirectly, I think just watching the game. My, my dad and I used to wake up in the mornings and, and watch Serie. A, you know, so I love Italian football coming up. You Whether know, it be you know Maldini or San Mista, you know, looking at Alvarado who's the only defender to win the Ballon d'Or. Uh, you know, at five nine. You know, so Carlos Puyol, another one. Um, and now today's my game. Yeah, numerous, uh, numerous <laughs> center backs you can talk about, and that I, I like to watch. But I think that's kind of where I get my my foundation from in terms of understanding, you know, the game and the nuances of it uh, at a young age, and you know, then you know, kind of coming up to to where I am.
0: So I have a theory. I want to see if you agree with it or not. That um, the U.S. used to be one of the worst countries in the world to watch professional soccer in on television. Like going back to like the 1990s and stuff. And the crazy thing is, over the last 10 years or so, the US has become one of the best countries in the world in which to watch professional soccer. Like, you can basically see just about anything, it's a lot easier. It's, you know, it's there. And my theory is that for young players, the ability to watch the highest levels of the game on television. Actually, has a pretty big impact because you can actually see it now, and it kind of seeps into you. It, it becomes part of who you are. Absolutely. Do you Do you agree with that?
2: Yeah, I think it's it's now changed. You know, the evolution of technology and the the exposure you know kids have to to watching the game uh, in all corners of the earth. Pretty much, you know, you can go on. The internet and find a, a website that has a game you know probably you know legal website of some sort but yeah you can find a game you know just about anywhere so I think that's been a, a big blessing for a lot of young kids coming up who, who love the game and, and you know want the opportunity to to, to watch the highest levels of, of football you know to watch the best players play um, and of course you have the big big news outlets and, and whatnot that uh, big yeah you know, tv outlets that you know, broadcasting matches, but now, like for example, ESPN Plus, you know, broadcasting some of the Belgian league games. And I think that's a a big booster because before, it's my family's trying to get links and use Express VPN, trying to change, you know. So, it's, you know, all this, all these, you know, finding ways to to go about watching. But yeah. Now you can turn on the TV and, and watch a game from but anywhere. So I think that's, yeah, uh, a, a big benefit, you know, a huge benefit for, for a lot of youngsters who, who, who want to play at the highest level.
0: You've already played in some big games with the U.S. men's national team. How has that process gone for you, getting to become more of a regular figure in that team?
2: It has not been smooth, man. I will not lie. You know, I think I started out in the youth national teams as kind of a spotty player. You know, I would come to one camp, you know, you know, every like eight or nine months, you know, I get an opportunity and I try and go for it, you know, and then I wouldn't get called back another eight or nine months. And it was a period where I was just frustrated. I was like, oh, my teammates are getting called up, man. I just want an opportunity, you know, that I just want to be, I want to be a consistent player, you know. And then I think Omid Namazi, he took me, I went to the January camp with his U18 team and then he brought me to Slovakia. And that was kind of like my, my chance, you know, to, to really represent and, uh, you know, I did well with that tournament and was a figure for his team going forward and then U 20s with Tad and whatnot. So I think it was, I was a late bloomer, I'd say, you know, in terms of, but, you know, when you really think about it, it's a lot of teams uh, or a lot of players, I'm sorry, are, you know, are guys who aren't going to necessarily be the ones to stand out right away at U14, you know, but the ones who stick at it and are persistent, you know, who have those experiences of not being in selection who are, who are are kind of, I wouldn't say, I don't want to say counted out, but, yeah are, are kind of not not in the uh in the plans initially um, and from there you're able to to, to really learn about yourself and, and figure out ways to continue to develop because you see guys around you and that's the competitive nature of uh of us as of us as athletes as, as footballers you want to you want to be with the best of the best you want to play at the highest levels you want to play in the biggest matches and yeah ultimately that's been my mentality and, and that's yeah a reason why i Able to, to now say I've played in some important matches for my national team, which has been a dream come true. Um, and hopefully, you know, many more to come. But but again, I still have things to, to clean up um, and, and to sharpen up on. But experiences that I, I continue to, to carry and, and, and learn from.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's some big games coming up starting in September with the national team with World Cup qualifying. And it's going to be unlike I've been covering this team for almost 25 years and I've never seen anything like what's going to happen with world cup qualifying three games, basically in every FIFA window, 14 games between September and March. Um, It's going to be a really intense experience. How are you viewing uh, how that process could be like for you?
2: Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately you don't know until you, until you go through it. Right. So, you know, I have I've had the stories. You know, I've talked to guys. You know, in the past, whether it be through the podcast or just period about um, teammates, um, even in the national team. Now, um, you know, guys like Ali Bedoya, for example, who've played in these big matches. Guys like Charlie Davies and and Gooch and Mo, um, or just talking to guys like John Brooks and DeAndre Edwin, uh and um, yeah, Christian playing. Uh, yeah, I can go down the list, but yeah, Weston. Yeah, we, we talk about these guys, but you don't know until you know. you know. So I think going with the mentality of it's going to be a fight and we want to play the football, you know, that's pretty and attractive and whatnot. But ultimately we go to, you know, Honduras and we got to play at three o'clock in the afternoon on a pitch that looks like a Sunday league pitch and the grass is, you know, thick and spotty, you know. Are we going to be able to play football the way we want to play? Most likely not. And when the ref is already calling things out of our favor, you know, what, what, what can you do? You know, we're going to control you know, what we can control and that's our mentality going into that match of we're gonna have to roll up our sleeves and handle business get three points and we go home you know so that's kind of how I'm, I'm looking at it you know we have it's a tough stretch we have three games in every window for a few months um, everyone's going to need to be ready because it's you know a lot of things can happen and then you go right back to your club and you play football and then you come back and you, you go again so it's yeah everybody's going to be counting on to, to to step up when their name is called but Ultimately I'm, I'm looking forward to the, the opportunity and the challenge.
0: What's your sense of how the public and the fans of the US men's national team are are viewing this World Cup qualifying process? Because my feeling is they're a little bit scarred about not qualifying for the last World Cup. Have you did you notice that as players or or is there an even greater sense of importance to get the job done and qualify this time around? I think that we already feel that pressure, you know, just as, as competitors. You know, we want
2: to succeed at, at all levels, right? You know, and when you go into any competition, you want to come out with a trophy. You want to come out on the winning end. So that pressure aside, you already understand about what's happened before. You understand the history, you know, you understand you know, the ups and the downs that have gone with, with wearing the badge. So how do you use those, those, those lessons, those experiences and carry them forward. So that way we can now create a, a, a I don't even want to call it a trend, but we create a track where it's going up, you know, at all times, you know, it's not, yeah, it's, it's going to be rocky. Yeah. But you're still going up. You're still going up. Uh, you may drop a little bit, but you're going up still. So it's, I think that's what, what we, we want to continue to, to instill in ourselves, but, but also, have you know show the the faithful you know show the the our followers show our fans that we are going to do everything in our power you know to to make sure that we, we set things right you now we we show the world that yeah all right we're America <laughs> yeah you don't think we can play but we actually have the ability to play with the best of the best we have the ability to contend you know at the highest levels of in international football you know and we can do it in multiple ways you know so if you're not up for the test then you're going to go out defeated, you know, I think I think that's what we're, we're really focused on. You know, it's about focusing on us as a group and areas we need to grow and improve on, but how can we continue to move forward, you know, with, with all that we know and that we've learned about um, from, from past and experiences and, and now knowing what we have to do, you know, in order to, to get to the top.
0: I want to ask about something that happened during Nations League, which was pretty awful and, and you had to go through it. Uh, you received racist abuse on social media in June with the national team. Did you feel like you got the support you needed from the right people during that process?
2: Yeah, I, I did. You know, and I, I still do. Uh, I think, again, racial abuse is something that happens. And I've talked about it before and talked about it on many, many different, you know, objects. But, yeah, it happens more than anybody even knows. You know, just because I posted once, but I could have posted several other times, you know, if it's, if it's where it's happening. You know, but again, it's about making a statement—not necessarily drawing attention, but showing that yeah, it's still prevalent. Yeah, it's still running rampant. And you know, we see after the England game, after the Euros, you know how how crazy it got. You know, from that from that game uh, with with say, Sancho, uh, Saka, and Rashford. So you know, for myself, I think my teammates they have my back. The coaches that have had my back. um, and I think that's what, what meant the most, you know, the guys who I'm going to, to bat with on daily, um, you know, in, in every window, whatever it is, you know, but, but the guys I'm going and, and, and fighting for, you know, with, with on the field, knowing that they have my back, you know, through the ups and the downs. So I think that's, that's most important and that gives you the confidence to be who you are, uh, to speak up um, when, when, when necessary, when applicable, um, and, and, and to, again, show, you know, we are one team, you know, that we are one nation. You know, and that bond that we have this is something that can't be broken. You know, it's only going to get stronger with these with these experiences. So, uh, yeah, again, it was a match. You know, of uh, <laughs> of, of, of lots of events, um, to say the least. Um, that Nations League final, stuff that I learned from. You know, I can take abuse, but I think the racial abuse is unnecessary. You know, and I think that's what that's the biggest message for me. You know, is at the end of the day, we're humans too, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to screw up, and we're we're out here. Playing the game that we love, but we're also entertainment, <laughs> entertainment to, to to some extent, right? And when things kind of cross the line and, and emotions get get too high, I think that's when now you, you, it becomes you know personal. And, yeah, uh, I can handle criticism about my game. That's fine, you know. Uh, but when you start when you start personally attacking people, it's just unnecessary. So yeah, the, 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 the support I had was, was tremendous. You know, the outpouring of, of messages and whatnot uh, was incredible. I'm extremely thankful. I have you know, this number of people um moving you know I'm behind me.
0: you have a podcast which not that many current players do I, how has that been how did that happen in the first place and and how do you find time to do it i guess when you're busy playing
2: yeah it came about back uh I think it was last year It one last year but I had a conversation with Richie Graham and he wanted to Essentially, uh, start, up, uh, start up a podcast, you know, that would have, uh, that would create a bridge between the past of U.S. soccer and the present of U.S. soccer. I mean, give yeah. any listener, you know, an inside scoop as to, to what it's like being a footballer, but playing you know, for your country or, or playing in your country or moving outside of your country. Um, and then how do we now bridge that with connecting with other footballers, you know, from out of the country and, and, and their experiences, and how do they connect in some way, shape, form? So I think that was uh, kind of the, the premise of, of the pod, and from there, I connected with Heath and the crew, um, and we sat down and chopped up some ideas on what we wanted to take things, and ultimately, you know, we came up Orange Slices just because we felt that it was a nostalgic title, you know, a nostalgic name that would remind you know, people of those days when you're on the, you know, playing youth football at a tournament, you need some quick you know, energy or some snack in, in at halftime or after a game, you're sitting around with your teammates and, you know, your, your your mom, you know, cuts up some oranges and you kind of just sit there and just munch on them. Um, so I think that was the, that that's the biggest thing. We wanted to, to be nostalgic and, and, and take people back, you know, to the roots of, of football. Um, and the interesting thing is, it may not be orange slices, you know, for a footballer from Europe, but it's something, you know, that, that takes them back in time. So I think that bridge there is, is, going to be the type of two more. So it's, uh, yeah, exciting to, to be a part of it. You know, it's picking up steam, but, uh, yeah, it's been uh, a learning curve for me, you know, the new realm, new industry of, uh, yeah, of of media and and trying to now have conversations with with either guys my age or guys who, who, you know, who I haven't been, been in contact with before. Some of my, uh, superiors, you could call them, whether it be coaches or you know directors that I played under, you know, as as players professionally or as a youth footballer. So I think it's been it's been fun, you know, to to kind of grow in this in this new way. It's helped me to to tap into a, a creative side of my mind and yeah, broaden my horizons.
0: <laughs> you're gonna take my job, yeah. Uh, no. <laughs> the way you're going here, you know, like I, I'm always curious when when players. Um, either go into media after their career or in your case, very early in your career. Um, what have been some of the most interesting things that you've done interview wise of other people that were, where you've learned something that, that you wouldn't have learned otherwise?
2: One of them is hearing the stories of of how, how guys came up, you know, as footballers, um, whether it be they didn't play as a kid and ultimately found it, you know, when they were in middle school or high school, some guys who were playing from the time they were out of the womb, you know, to to yeah, to the end of their career or, excuse me. Um, but, yeah, uh, another one is, is the stories of like Congo Cap stories and hearing about these experiences in hotels and, and going to games, going to uh, – yeah, Azteca, or or yeah, walking in the locker rooms, you know, after a match, or you know, those experiences that you don't get to hear about necessarily, you know, in in, in other interviews or you know uh, on on social media or whatever it is. Um, and then lastly, I think it's been interesting to hear about some of the uh, the ways in which guys have continued to 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 take things in their career after they're done playing. You know, mm-hmm. hearing about yeah, you know, I. I love football, you know, but I've taken things in a new direction, you know, now I'm doing this or, you know, I have this endeavor going on, you know, outside of, uh, you know, connect, connected to football, but the football has allowed me the vessel to, to, to make the the and connections to, I think that's for me is, is, is interesting, you know, because I'm still playing football right now. Um, and this is, you know, a way for me to kind of express myself, wow. but, but also, you know, it gives me an idea of, what I would potentially be interested in, you know, after you know, after I'm done playing, you know, it gives me the ability now that I've, you know, had conversations with guys that I don't think I would have, you know, now I can contact them and speak to them about, hey, I'm interested in so-and-so or I'm interested in doing this, you know, do you know of anything that I, uh, you know, you know, anybody in this area, you know, uh, stuff like that, you know, that I know as a young guy. You know, I get to kind of establish that foundation early, and, and once my career is done, you know, long long time down the road, uh, um, now I can you know kind of set myself up for uh, for success you know after football.
0: Well, you mentioned Mo Edu and and Aguchi Anyewu, and and those guys had terrific playing careers, and now they're both doing media, they're doing television, and and doing a terrific job with it as well. So it's been kind of neat for me having covered those guys to see the transition they've made, and I'm excited to see what happens with you and your generation as well i can already tell you this based on my own experience covering uh soccer over the years your young generation of of national team players you know there's so many of you guys in your early 20s and even late teens you're good interviews like it, it, it's <laughs> i, I that that's not like um uh Something that just is inevitable. So, uh, from from the journalist perspective, I'll say thanks because uh, <laughs> it's been fun interviewing you guys on on the podcast. I, I, the one question I would have, I guess, just to wrap up, would be: What sort of career goals do you have? What do you want to do in your playing career?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, ultimately, it's, you know, we have the World Cup coming up, you know, next year. So to to be part of that team, you know, to to help, yeah, play a role in that team. You know, I think that's. Most sustainable goal right now, short term. You know, I think uh, for me as an international footballer, you know, every kid dreams of playing in the World Cup, so that's now uh, a feasible, feasible goal. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so so putting my efforts into helping the team in any way I can um, to, to to make that a reality. Um, uh, yeah, Champions League football as well. You know, we got Champions League coming up next week, and, and to hear the anthem, to actually play in those, you know, in those moments, I think that's been a a dream of mine, and, and now that's, yeah, right here. That's next week, so uh preparing for that and hoping, hopefully, hopefully we can continue to, to make it to the group stage and, and then, you know, continue to play against the, the best of the best. Um, that's what you want to do. Uh, and then, yes, yeah, the win trophies. That's that's the biggest thing. You know, you don't get an opportunity to win trophies often, right? So when you have those opportunities, you have to make the most of them. So, yeah, this past year, we got three. You know, the Supporter Shield, Belgium Cup, Nations League. I think that's... Yeah, more than <laughs> – that's the uh, – yeah, it's, it's been a dream as well. So, again, playing at the highest levels, playing in the top five leagues, um, now a gank, you know, and the Belgian league, uh, to be honest, I think it deserves more respect than it, than it gets, you know, in terms of its competitive nature uh, from top to bottom. On any given day, you can lose if you're not up to the task. I think that's what, what will really help, um, you know, guys like myself, you know, to, to play against quality attackers. You know, but but also understand the other side of it is the the, the physicality and the uh, the intensity that comes along with playing in Europe. It's a, it's a good step for me, um, or you know, potentially make the next step to to, to playing in you know, Germany or in a France or in Italy or England or Spain, you know, whatever that wherever it is. Um, so yeah, um, those are just kind of some 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 relative some relative goals of mine. You know, in terms of career, but yeah, it's about uh, the simplest, way I can, the simplest way I can answer that question.
0: Mark McKenzie is a center back for the Belgian club Gank and for the U.S. men's national team. Mark, good luck with the season ahead. I'll see you when you're with the U.S. national team in person. And thanks so much for coming on the show.
2: I appreciate it. Thanks for having me, man.
0: Thanks for listening to Football with Grant Wall. I'd like to thank Mark McKenzie as well as producer and pundit Chris Whittingham. If you like the podcast, you could do me a huge favor and hit that subscribe button and provide a rating and a review. I'm back soon with another interview of someone from the soccer world. Be safe, everyone. See you next time.